you would once again open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, we're going to continue a study that we started in the nine o'clock hour. Nehemiah is where we'll be for the remainder of this morning. It's again a blessing to be with you today. It's always a joy to gather with those of like precious faith. It's it's also good to see among our number many visitors and we want you to know that you are our honored guest. We're very encouraged by your presence. Some family and friends are in from out of town, and, and we're thankful for you being here and hope that you've been encouraged and edified by the worship so far. I'm so thankful for all who have participated in the leadership roles in, in worship, the words that were spoken, the prayers that were worded, and it's been a very uplifting and edifying and encouraging morning. I hope that that can continue in this hour as we go to God's word that he can guide us with and as we bring glory to his name through the proclamation of his good message. In Nehemiah chapter 2 and in verse 18, as Brother Bob Ward read for us just a minute ago, as Nehemiah surveyed the wall of Jerusalem, realizing it was in desperate need of repair, he brought that to the people's attention and told them, let's build. So they said, let us rise up and build. And they set their hands to this good work. We studied for a few moments this morning from this text, and I want us to be reminded that while we can glean from this particular book many good character traits and examples and lessons to be learned from the man Nehemiah as individuals. I think that it behooves us to look at it on a broader scale, realizing that we are parts of a whole, but understanding our responsibility to rise up and build as a congregation. We noted how in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're being those who are built up a, a spiritual house, a priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And that song that Foster led us in really fits perfectly with this theme, doesn't it? Because we're building on the cornerstone of Christ. The body of Christ is the church. And I know that is something that is very fundamental to our understanding of the Bible and our beliefs in Christ. But if you really just meditate on that, it's, it's very instructive, just the very figure. We are... Christ. We're the body of Christ. But the only way that that happens is to truly be under his headship and for him to control us, for him to dictate our every move, every breath we draw, we depend upon him. And of course, understanding that in a very spiritual way, I think that we can come to appreciate the points in Nehemiah as we're trying to build in this place a faithful congregation, a congregation that continues to grow, a congregation that lasts through the generations. It takes a lot of what we see here in Nehemiah to be successful in that. They set their hands to the good work after that decision. Let us rise up and build. Chapter 4 and verse 6, they had a mind to build. And then in chapter 6 and in verse 15, they finished the building of that wall. An impressive feat by itself in 52 days. Such an impressive feat that even the enemies realized it must have been God that was involved in this. 
And really what's encouraging to me among many things in this book is this is just another instance of God's faithfulness and power and ability. This is just a different part of their history, but it's the same old story. The people have rebelled. God has punished them. They have, at least to some degree, some of them have come to their senses. Others decided to stay in Babylon. And God has shown His faithfulness and His power and His ability to accomplish great things among them. And brethren, that's what it's going to take in this place. It's going to take the concern and the confidence that we talked about this morning. It's going to take considering what God's will is and and where we are in position to that will. Are, Are we doing everything the way God wants us to do it? Are are we doing it well in every way that God wants us to do it? Or is there any room to grow? Maybe is there something we're not doing that we should be doing? Is there something we're doing that we shouldn't be doing? We've got to consider these things and have confidence in God's grace to change us and to make us into His image, to be the body of Christ that we're called to be. Very briefly, again, just consider... The context of Nehemiah, historically, politically, and religiously, they have returned from Babylonian captivity after the seven years prophesied by Jeremiah. Cyrus has given the people permission to go back and to rebuild the temple. That happened in Ezra. And now Nehemiah comes under the Persian king Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall. And that's what we read about in this good book. But as we'll note in a moment, There's great opposition. They are surrounded by enemies. All sides, they have opposition and conflict. And the three that we specifically read about earlier in the scripture reading is Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And we'll see even internal enemies as well. And, And understand this as we're thinking about this. And I think I said this in the first lesson. This is more than just a wall. This is more than just... Uh, sheetrock that we have. This is their fortification against all enemies foreign. They depend upon this. This is extremely vital to an ancient city, the wall that is. But even more than that, this is more than just a wall. This is their relationship with God. As we remember in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, there was a question of whether Mount Gerizim is a place of worship or Zion. And Jerusalem and Jesus said there's a time coming where it doesn't matter where you are, just as long as you're a true worshiper, worshiping in spirit and in truth, that's what God desires and that's what is to come in the messianic rule. But now Jerusalem's the place. This is more than just a wall. This is more than just a physical edifice in the temple. This is the epicenter of true spiritual relationship with the one and only true God. And that's what's in Nehemiah's mind. He doesn't care about burned up stones. He cares about what's behind that, really what it symbolizes, a broken down and burned up people, a a people who had lost their fellowship with God and desperately want that restored, a people who want things back to where they were before, where God is their God, they are His people, and they are firing on all spiritual cylinders. And brethren, that's always got to be our goal. And I want to tell you one of the first ways to know that we are unsuccessful in our building or maybe on the flip side, successful in our building is realizing we have a long way to go. If we think that we are where we need to be, then we're going to fail. We're already failing. They needed to realize 
how much they needed to work and how much it meant as they were children of God, and we do as well. So we spoke about concern that we need to have and confidence in God that we need to have reflected in Nehemiah's prayer. We, we noted that he didn't just come to Jerusalem and start building willy-nilly. He, he considered the work. I mean, there's a lot at stake here, and there's a lot at stake in this place. We can't just blindly go into things and leap into things and kind of figure it out as we go along. We've got to study God's word and we've got to examine ourselves individually and collectively. And then we've got to cooperate with one another. Every single soul that is in this room this morning has an obligation to God and that obligation to God cannot be fulfilled totally without fulfilling the obligation to this congregation or to your respective congregations when you go home. We've got to serve God as members of the body. But I want us to think about something as well as we consider Nehemiah. And we looked at the political climate that they found themselves in, surrounded by enemies. Brethren, we studied from Psalm 23 this morning, and Nevin did an excellent job. We had some excellent comments where we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, where there are wolves that want to tear us apart. And brethren, there are enemies all around us. Satan is the one leading them. And so it was in Nehemiah's time with the children of God. And so while we need to have concern, confidence, consideration, and cooperation, we're going to need to be circumspect, aware, and cautious, and then courageous. We need to be circumspect and we need to be courageous. We already noted in chapter 2 of Nehemiah and in verse 10, when Nehemiah first got there, that Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it and they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. You know there are people that are deeply disturbed that you even came here this morning? There are those type of people in the world that are so secular, so physical in their thought they chafe at the very concept of religion. In verse 19, it escalated. When Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, that is that they said, let's rise up and build. No, he's not just checking on the people, but he's kind of mustering the forces to do a big project and get this work done. So they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king, little did they know that the king sent him. And not only did he send him, he sent him with letters to let them pass. And he sent them with letters to get supplies for the building of this wall. But things didn't even stop there. You have the well-being of the people that Nehemiah comes to check on that disgusts them. And then you have the decision we are going to build. And then they start building. And it says in chapter 4 of Nehemiah in verse 1, it so happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned and then Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, 
he will break down their stone wall. I want to just very briefly break down what they said. You notice the questions that Sanballat asks, and these are the same kind of darts of doubt that the devil is going to hurl our way as a congregation. He doesn't think we can do it. He doesn't want us to do it. And he's going to try to discourage us every step of the way. This is what Sanballat asks. What are these feeble Jews doing? They're feeble. Will they fortify themselves? Ridiculing the people's strength and the people's ability. And that's probably the most sound thought you're going to get out of him. Because we can't do it by ourselves. We are feeble by ourselves. But there's something that he didn't realize. And he, under, he doesn't understand it. It's manifest there in that next question. Will they offer sacrifices? They're too feeble to do it themselves. Look at these tiny Jews with these big projects. Are they going to appeal to their God? Is he going to help them? He doesn't think that's going to work. He doesn't have a faith in God. He doesn't have a reverence for God. He doesn't have a trust in God. Will they complete it in a day? They don't understand how big this work is. They're acting like this is a small thing. They think they're going to finish this quick. And you understand why they were so stunned in chapter 6 when they finished in 52 days. They did not undermine how big the task was. Do they even have the materials? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? And God wants us to revive members and restore souls and to mend up what's broken by His grace. But Satan wants us to believe that there's just too many damaged people at 84th Street. They've got this guy that did this back at this time. They've got this woman that did this back at this time. Satan just wants us to feel like there's no way we can succeed. And God wants us to see His grace. And then in verse 3, even if they build anything up on it, it's going to be negligible in its strength. But then this escalates. And the people become aware of it, of course. Notice in verse 7 of this same chapter, Nehemiah 4, it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs and Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry and all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. You see how it's escalating? I want to tell you, each time we make a step of progress, the devil does too. It's never a good time to lay down our guard, to act as if we've got this all figured out and there's no danger ahead of us. Each time we make progress, the devil tries something stronger. In chapter 6, it would get to the point where they tried to fool Nehemiah into coming to meet them as they sought to do him harm, verse 2. And Nehemiah refused to do that. When he refused to meet with them, then they wrote an open letter and sent it to him, which defamed his character and made false accusations. It says, according to the rumors, you're rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. Verse 7 of chapter 6. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, so come therefore and let us consult together. And so it's endless. They're trying everything they can. They're throwing the entire book at him, trying to get him to falter. But he trusts in God. And so we've got to be circumspect as members of the church, as this congregation here. We've got to realize that there are forces working against us that are very great. And if we aren't 
circumspect about them, they'll destroy us. We can't see the spiritual beings and hosts of wickedness that are working against us, but God reveals it to us and we can sure see it by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Brethren, we've got to be circumspect. We've got to keep our eyes peeled from outer conflict and outer oppression and outer danger and inner danger as well. We've got to be aware of each other and what we're doing and the things that we're manifesting. And so being circumspect and knowing the threat, they did not shrink before the great work, but they turned to God. Notice in verse 9 of chapter 4, when they had made the threat to create confusion by attacking them, Nehemiah records, nevertheless, we made our prayer to God and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. They set a watch. And then in verse 11, it says, our adversary said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. But because of their circumspection, notice verse 12, it was when the Jews who dwelt near uh, uh, them came, they told us 10 times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings and I set the people according to their families with their swords and spears and bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord great and awesome and remember uh, the Lord great and awesome. He'll fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your houses. Then notice in verse 15 what that led to because they were circumspect and they saw the danger and they acted and they set up this kind of watch and defense system before they could attack. It happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Isn't that what happened? But not forever, there's going to be another opportunity. He's going to come back. So notice in verse 16, they continued to be circumspect and courageous, ready to fight at a moment's notice. It says in verse 16, it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held their spears and shields and bows and and wore armor. And the leaders uh, were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction And with the other hand, they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. That's impressive to me. How aware they were of the threat, how ready they were to confront it, and how God was working behind all of this. And then lastly, notice in verse 19 and 20, there is a communal vigilance and a a strength of community in regard to mutual love and concern for one another. It said, I said to the nobles, rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive and we are separated from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. What wonderful words. They were rallying to each other to defend each other at all costs. And through this, I want us to notice a very important connection. When we're thinking about how we're trying to build in this congregation, we're trying to be the people of God he's called us to be while Satan's trying to completely and utterly destroy us and we should not lose heart but be courageous. I want us to notice the connection between the appeal to God, always, always an appeal to God, but always the corresponding action of the people. You see that? 
It's not grace alone. It's by grace through faith that obeys, the Scripture says. We will not be the congregation calls us to be just by saying, I trust in God. I trust that because we still exist here in this place and we have X amount of people, that that's all it takes and we're going to be the congregation calls us, God calls us to be. It takes God's grace and our appeal to Him, but also our work. He told the people in chapter 2 and verse 20, the enemies that is, the God of heaven Himself will prosper us, therefore we will arise and build Chapter 4 in verse 9, they prayed to God and then they set a watch. Chapter 4 and in verse 14, I looked and arose and told the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord great and awesome and then fight for your brethren. Remember God and fight for your brethren. You do something. Verse 20, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. You do something. You come fight, but God will fight for us. And then in chapter 6, when they finished the wall, it says in verse 15, it was finished in 52 days. And in verse 16, it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Did the Jews do anything? Certainly. God was working through them. We need to understand that about our role and responsibility as a congregation of the Lord's in this place. There are forces trying to tear us down even at this moment. Do you understand that? It would be such a delight for Satan for me to utter a false word and for you to be disinterested so you weren't listening, ignorant so you didn't know, or just not here, and for this congregation to be corrupted from the inside out. Satan would love it if an unqualified man was appointed to the eldership and took the congregation a different direction. Satan would love it if the men just didn't care enough to become qualified in the first place. Satan would love it if the women gossiped and tore down each other behind the scenes. He's trying to destroy us now, brethren. We've got to be circumspect, and we also have to be courageous to fight against him. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we read of Satan and his devices and what he's trying to do to us. In verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. It's in Ephesians chapter 6, I know we know, that the Apostle Paul impresses the brethren with the fact of spiritual warfare that they themselves, whether they knew it or not, were involved in on a daily basis. And he's trying to open their eyes and he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly Places. So take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Are you taking up that armor? I'll show you what it looks like, at least in one degree. In Jude verse 3, this is what Jude wrote. While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, 
I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting to you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to talk about the good. He wants to talk about grace and forgiveness and salvation and heaven and joy and peace. But because he's circumspect and he's courageous with the grace of God at back of him, when someone's threatening all of those good things, he's going to fight. You understand that? He's going to fight. There's a wonderful comment made in class about how the discipline of the Lord to the spiritual mind is comforting. And so it is with this kind of disciplinary action in correcting those who are teaching falsely. We've got to have vigilance here, brethren. Not just the overseers. All of us need to be vigilant. We need to be aware and we need to realize that we have a responsibility as individuals of this congregation to watch for evil, watch for sin, watch for error, even among ourselves. And when we see it, we call it out and we deal with it. Notice in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12, he says, we urge you, brethren, recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. He's talking about the elders. You esteem them highly, you, you honor them, you, you recognize them, you submit to them, they do a good work, and obviously they have great responsibility that they're called to and they'll be judged for. But then he goes on and says, we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Who's he talking to, the elders? Certainly they'd be involved in that. He's talking to me. He's talking to you. Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. He goes on and talks about testing all things and holding fast to what is good and abstaining from evil. That's a communal vigilance and effort. And is it a daunting task? Can be. But just like we studied in Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. If He's with us, we don't have to fear we can walk through that valley and we can conquer the foe. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 13, Paul put it this way, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, and let all that you do be done with love. You had better believe that an enemy is seeking to destroy us. So we've got to be circumspect and courageous. And springing from that, you know what is also in Nehemiah? that is evident as a very real necessity even among God's people today? Confrontation. You say, that's negative. What do you mean by that? What do you mean we have to be confronting and have confrontation in our midst? When there's something wrong, it must be confronted. To fail to confront evil, sin, and error in a congregation is merely to compromise, to let it fester, to let it worsen, We've got to be willing to confront those things that creep up in our midst. Notice in Nehemiah chapter 6 and in verses 10 through the end of that chapter, there is an account of some people within the city of God, God's people who have allied themselves with the enemy. And they hired one as a false prophet to tell Nehemiah, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us 
close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And he, he saw that I was a false prophet. It would be sinful for me to enter the holy place and to desecrate it. And that's exactly what they were trying to do. At the end of the chapter, it speaks about how there were some who were secret informers of Tobiah and they reported everything that Nehemiah and the people were doing. I want us to notice something else, though, that hits a little closer to home in chapter 5. There were some brethren, and, and you think about it in regard to this context. Here are people who have been in captivity for years and years and years. You think about that. Our, our, our national pride that we have, maybe just on a smaller scale, your family pride that you have. And your family's taken as slaves. You think that you're going to come together and to have concern for each other and compassion on one another. These people have been in captivity. They come back. They're trying to fortify their city and their own brethren are oppressing them. The nobles are taking from them. There were various complaints in verses one through five of the Jewish brethren about how they mortgaged their lands. They had... They had borrowed money from the king. And so in verse 6, Nehemiah says, I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Then notice this in verse 7. After serious thought, let's really think about what's going on. Someone is sinning in the congregation. Someone said something erroneous in a class. There's error among the brethren. There's confusion and there's disunity people aren't getting along let's sit and give serious thought to this he says after serious thought verse 7 i rebuked the nobles and the rulers and then after he told them to give back what rightly belongs to these people and they said we will restore it he then required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise you realize how serious such a situation is Brethren, it's the same thing in the church. We've got to confront evil no matter who is working the evil. No matter how small the evil may seem in our eyes, realize, as it was said before, that it's still great in God's eyes. The church can't have this kind of laissez-faire attitude about the spiritual condition of brethren. When I see my brother or sister in spiritual need, I've got to confront them. Galatians chapter 6 and in verse 2, that's exactly what we see Paul encouraging the brethren to do. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. To the degree that a few chapters before that, Paul stood as an example. Peter was to be blamed, so Paul withstood him to his face and the presence of other people. How uncomfortable. But it was necessary that he be confronted. Elders will be at the helm of this kind of confrontation. They are those who hold fast the faithful word, Titus 1 and verse 9, that they may by sound doctrine be able both to exhort and convict those who contradict. He goes on to say that there are some idle talkers and deceivers. Their mouths must be stopped. But brethren, we've got to follow their lead. Their mouths must be stopped. We've got to confront the evil among us. Also, though, as we've talked about before, this was more than just building a wall. Very shortly after they built the wall, 
You know what they did? They had God's word read throughout the day. And then again, and then again. In fact, for the remainder of that month, the seventh month at the end of chapter seven, going into chapter eight, they had God's word read. You know, the activity of hearing God's word immediately after the wall was finished, it actually manifests the reason for their success in the first place. And not only does it manifest the reason for their success, but it manifests the whole purpose the wall served. You remember Nehemiah's prayer in chapter one. He said, these are your people who desire to fear your name because they had an intense craving to fear God and keep his commandments is what led them by God's grace and his action for their benefit to actually build the wall in the first place. And the wall was built not so that they could rest on the laurels, not so that they could just go about with this absent-mindedness, this lack of spiritual awareness, but so that they, being fortified, could worship and serve God in peace, grow closer to Him on a daily basis. We talk about that all the time, that we are so blessed in this nation to be able to gather and assemble without fear of molestation outwardly. But do we actually take advantage of it? They built the wall so that they could devote themselves even furthermore to God. And that's why God brought them that success. He knew how important the wall was. And so while when we want to rise up and build, we need to have all of these kinds of characteristics and attitudes. We've got to be seeking God's counsel. You cannot build without God's counsel. So in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1, be impressed. The people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord God commanded Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Be impressed firstly by the fact that this was requested. They wanted to have the law read to them for a day throughout the month. They wanted it. They sought it. Verse 3, notice, He read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They paid attention. Not, yeah, I want to assemble on the first day of the week and I want to hear God's word proclaimed, but I'm going to tune it out. I'm going to let my mind wander. They were attentive. How foolish is it to request something only to ignore it? They requested it. They gave attention to it. And this is really impressive to me in verse four, something that we might be inclined to just pass over in a casual reading. So Ezra, the scribe, stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. They just finished building a wall for 52 days. And before God's word was read, they made sure someone in that community built a pulpit. They built a stage for all these men to stand upon reading and preaching God's word. And we talk about how tasking our jobs are, how much we've got going on at home. And it's real hard. You don't understand to to assemble faithfully. I've got so much going on. These people would work a hundred hour week, show up on Saturday, build a pulpit for the preaching of the gospel on Sunday. That's what they did. Beyond that, they wanted God's word and they respected God's word. Notice in verse five, He opened the book in the sight of the people and was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. 
They were showing respect. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their heads, and they bowed their heads, hands, and bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Notice in verse 7, it says that the people stood in their place as they helped them understand the law. It was not just a reading, it was an explanation. You understand application is important. You say, just give me God's word, but preacher, keep your applications out of it. That's exactly what preaching is. They had God's word read and they were craving, how does that look applied to my life? What does that mean I act like, I sound like, I dress like, I I carry myself from day to day? They wanted the application and they certainly craved it. And then you notice in verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. It moved them. They cared about it. It struck a chord in their heart and then it caused joy. Verse 12, the people went their way to eat and drink to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Brethren, if we're to rise up and build as God wants us to, We've got to demand and crave God's word. We're those people who hunger and thirst after righteousness and he will fill us, Matthew 5 and verse 6. We realize the value of the inspired word of God that through it we can be thoroughly equipped to every good work. You think about a letter like the letter to the Corinthians, the first one, and how it's divided. One half is problems that were reported to Paul that he's addressing. And the other half, he begins each section now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. They wrote a letter to Paul seeking the counsel of God's word. I want to know if we're doing right here, if we're doing wrong here. I want you to tell us plain and clear, black and white, so that we can be a faithful and sound church. Would we be willing to do that if Paul was alive today? Would our elders, would our people request the elders to draft a letter send it to Paul, overnight it, so that he can send a letter back detailing everything we're doing good and everything we're doing bad. Would we want that? Well, brethren, we've got that luxury today. We just got to read the book and compare ourselves to it. Do we want to, though? They wanted to know the truth. They wanted to be the pillar and ground of the truth. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And lastly, and jumping from that again, They rose up and they built and they were successful because they were a people willing to confess, to commit themselves to God and to make changes. They continued to read from the book of the law in chapter nine. It was even on the 24th day now. So chapter eight is the first day. Chapter nine is the 24th day. They've still been reading the law and those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. It goes on to detail how the Levites caused them to praise God, and they made a document to be sealed. They made a covenant. That's what runs throughout the rest of chapter 9. And it details the history of the children of Israel, their rebellions, God's faithfulness. Notice some of the words there in verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the almighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings, princes, priests, prophets, fathers, and all your people 
from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us. You have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. They're acknowledging their sin. They're acknowledging their guilt. And they're making this a sure covenant, verse 38, writing on it. The leaders and Levites will seal it and the priests will seal it. Notice what that details down in verse 28. It says they separated themselves and their daughters and everyone who had knowledge and understanding and joined with their brethren. Verse 29 of chapter 10, I'm at. Their nobles and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his ordinances and his statutes. They confessed their sins and they committed to a change. And brethren, this was not lip service. We skipped over a good portion of chapter 8. and We'll not read it through, but in chapter 8 it says on the second day in verse 13, they called to have the word read again. And in that reading they came across the commandment for the Feast of Tabernacles. And in that was the commandment to dwell for seven days in booths. It tells us that they had not done that since the days of Joshua. I mentioned in the first hour that this is the latest part of Israelite history we have in the Old Testament. This is what it cuts off with, and we begin in chapter 1 of Matthew with the Israelites in Christ's time. This is where it cuts off. Since the days of Joshua, that far back, they were not fulfilling this commandment. And said they started to do it. That's change, brethren. We got to ask ourselves that question. If we came to know there was something we'd been neglecting for years, generations, and it's right there in God's word, would we be willing to start doing it? Would we confess that we have been negligent? Would we start doing the Lord's work. Still after Nehemiah's 12 years, as I mentioned in the introduction in the first hour this morning, he goes back to the king and when he comes back, he finds, and we have detailed in chapter 13, that there was various problems of a spiritual nature that he had to correct and the people made the necessary changes. The house of God was being desecrated when Tobiah was given a room for personal use, the very enemy of the people. The portions of the Levites were being neglected and so they had to go work for their food because people were not tithing. The Sabbath day was not being kept. After Ezra had made his reformation in Ezra 9 and 10, they had intermarried again and had these foreign women among them that had to be put away. So what we learn in Nehemiah is what it takes to rise up and build for God is His Word. But his word must be followed with confession, commitment, and any change that he would call us to make. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we see a church in the New Testament do just that. We just talked about how in 1 Corinthians, the people had reports given to Paul about things they were doing that he corrected. And then they asked Paul about some things. And Paul did not pull any punches. You know 1 Corinthians this is how they responded. He says, even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but sorrow of the world produces death. I want to pause there. I know that often we apply this to me individually, and we should. 
Repentance has certain characteristics and fruit that comes from it. You can know what is true repentance. But brethren, this is talking about the congregation. This is talking about a congregation who was doing a lot of bad things. In particular, they were putting up with a man who had his father's wife. And I think that's directly what this is corresponding to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The congregation was so puffed up that they kept him in their midst. They just let sin go by without confronting it at all. And Paul called them on it and said, listen, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You're not going to be a faithful church. You're not right now. And you're never going to be if you keep this up. You think God looks on you with favor? This is congregational. He's talking about congregational change, congregational repentance. For observe this very thing, verse 11. What does it look like? You sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Just read Revelation 2 and 3. Those churches addressed. Two of them were doing well. And they were encouraged to keep doing well. But Ephesus, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea were warned, unless you repent, your candlestick will be taken from you. The people of God must be committed to His will and always willing to confess sins and make necessary changes. We can build our building that we're planning to build and it can be wonderful, very suitable to our number and purposes and then not carry out the Lord's will and it means nothing. That wall meant nothing unless it fortified them to serve God acceptably and faithfully. That's what it's for. And that's what we need to be committed to. There's so many lessons we can learn from Nehemiah, but I hope that these few have been beneficial to you. The people of his time were far from perfect, brethren, but they responded to opportunity. They trusted in God's grace and they worked for the Lord and found success. So let us to rise up and build. If you have not been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, then you're not a part of that body of Christ. You're not even a part of this work, but you can be. That's the beauty of it. It's not something that excludes just on everybody except some particular people. Anybody can be a part of the Lord's body. You've just got to come responding in faith to His invitation. And we encourage you to do so this afternoon. If there's a spiritual need we can assist you with beyond that, we ask you to come forward while we stand and sing.